Hey, Jews, if you don't like bad words, maybe there's a nice other show you can go listen to. But don't stick around these parts because our language will fry your ears off. Was that scary enough? It was a little scary. My goal for this week is to be scary about it. It will fry your ears off. It will melt your ears. That's what our obscenity will do to you. Uh, So get the kids out of the room. Hello, Jews during Lent. I'm Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello. Hello. And Tablet Senior Writer, Senior Writer, Leah Leibowitz. Our Jew of the Week is filmmaker Adam Irving, who's made an amazing documentary about a guy who impersonates New York City transit operators. And our Dead of the Week is Macy Halford, author of the new book, My Utmost, which in its own way is just as insane. But we'll get to that. Um, before we do, any any stories from the home front? I got one. Um, Last night, I went to the 18th birthday of the Duke Hillel, which is called the Freeman Center for Jewish Life. So this was their 18th year. (laughs) When you started to say that, I was like, is that an honorific in England, Duke Hillel? But then I realized you meant your alma mater. For my my nephew, Duke Hillel. (laughs) He's from the British side of Hillel. Duke University Hillel. uh, Yes, it's called the Freeman Center for Jewish Life. And I went, there was a party. It was like a block away from the office. And I was like, I want to like see what's going on. It was in New York. It was in New York. Yeah, it was this big, it was like 350 people. The actor Mark Feuerstein emceed the event, which is, you know, he's from Royal Pains. Yeah, we're nodding his, our head like we know who that he, is. His sure. wife went to Duke. He yes. didn't even go to Duke. Yeah, I know that. Show I just had this moment of, of of like maybe this is growing up, but I didn't really go to the the Freeman Center when I was in college. I went there for a few like bagel brunches, after, like breakfast things. But I just like I had this feeling of just like oh I get it and I want to help this organ. Like I want to be part of it now. I want to sort of do what I can. So was, am I growing up? Do you up? think it was just growing up or is it that we live in shall we say different times right I, now? Yeah, I mean I think when I went to Duke, I remember there was like pro-Palestinian graffiti on one of the bridges like between East and West Campus when we went to look at it. And that was like the extent of... It was the blue right. line. Yeah, basically. Um, and I didn't really have to think about Israel in college. I didn't go to Columbia. I didn't go to a place where like that was at the forefront of conversation. And also it was, you know, longer ago than I care to admit <laughs> right now. But I think college students right now, Jewish college students, you have to have a stand. Like You sort of have to be a little more educated and a little more informed. And I think these services are much i mean services that the hill provides are so much more important now yeah it is true that these these spaces are they are safe spaces which matters more i remember when i was in college when rabin was assassinated and i i had when i say i had zero interest in israel it wasn't i wasn't pro or anti i just had i was i remember when my friend rebecca who was much more interested in jewish affairs then uh than i was um said she like fell apart, started sobbing. And I said, what are you so upset about? And she said, the assassination. It took me a minute. I was like, what assassination? Like, what? Clinton? And uh, then she said, no, Rabin. And oh, she just- Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford? <laughs> right. And she was like, Tupac? And she, <laughs> like, and she was sobbing. And I just didn't get it at all. And I don't, you know, the, that level of cluelessness is probably not an option. You know, I anymore. wish I had that kind of safe space uh, that you described. I think Israeli universities- <laughs> should have Hillel's? the opposite of Hillel's. <laughs> they should have something called Shammai, right? Which is just a, a, a building where you could come in to talk about everything except for Israel and Jewish life. <laughs> can I, yeah, can I sit pong. here? Right. Exactly. And just throw some beer like the hardiest. and just drink some beer. It's like what you think an American experience Completely normal for a moment. We um, didn't have that. A little news of the Jews this week. A lot of news of the Jews Natalie Portman had a baby. Let's just dispatch with that. The yep. baby's name was Bet. No. Wasn't the first one, Olive? That's a good joke, uh-huh. Uh, the baby's name was Amalia. The baby's name was, I'd like to thank the Academy. Uh, Amalia, Amalia. Millipier. Mil- of, Millipier. Uh, Amalia Millipede. <laughs> Millipede, yeah. It's an amazing Can name. Can you believe Portman and Millipede are still together? I love it so much. They're going to be the Stiller and Mira of this generation. In other news of the Jews, Donald Trump called Bibi. Bibi took the call. The call came while he was being interrogated for corruption charge. Like the police were in the room. That's right. And Trump called. So it wasn't even like That's the police right. were listening. They were like actually there with him. He was in the middle of a police criminal. Was he in like his office or was he in their <laughs> no, office? No, I think he was, he was downtown. I think he was downtown. Did his cell phone ring with the special Trump ring? The you know spe- what this is? <laughs> the Trump has like, what is his special Trump ring? He's like, like, oh, quack, it's gone. quack, quack. <laughs> you know how uh, you know, my young friends tell me yeah. that uh, when you go on internet dates and you're not sure how the date would go on, you ask a friend to call you after like 30 minutes and right. then you could always say, oh, I'm really sorry, I have to go. I think that's what BB is doing with Trump. <laughs> it's like, I it's like uh, listen, Donald, uh, call me in 30 minutes. <laughs> Say it's about the Iran deal. Very important. <laughs> are there any major Israeli politicians who are not under investigation or in jail? Yes, yeah, the right ones now. who are in jail. <laughs> Israel beat Korea in the first round of the World Baseball Excuse Championship. Me. And, and last night, 
Who else did Israel beat? Oh yeah, you missed our know. story meeting. Oh it was yeah, heated, a heated discussion Cuba? of the this Israel. This US. is one this is the of the greatest of baseball. moments what is this called? of my adult life. Is anyone on this team Israeli? Stephanie, that is an offensive. It's Amari Stoudemire is actually our on the list, team. To yeah. The incredible, <laughs> the real incredible thing about this team all is that you do, to qualify for one of these teams, you do not have to be a citizen of said country. You have to technically qualify, be eligible for citizenship in that country. Meaning, every Jew in the world is technically a it's part. It's basically could be, birthright, right? A part of the Israeli <laughs> baseball team. And so it's like so who are these people? It's like Ike Davis from the LA Dodgers. It's like people like that, right? right. With some, one exception, some, Cuban, some Jewish Cuban. One exception. Yeah. One Israeli-born gentleman uh, who is the uh, program director here at City Winery, New York, whose name is Shlomo. His name is Shlomo. I mean, Shlomo, what, you I are wanna, my fucking I hero, man. He's the only Israeli. Party, yeah. Only Israeli-born. We should be having a watch party at City Winery. I'm sure they are. Like this is this is hilarious. By the way, th- they should absolutely uh, Im- apply the same rules to like the Oscars. <laughs> Be like uh, the 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 best uh, picture entry this year is uh, Schindler List by Steven Spielberg. Is a Jew is for uh, Israel. He could eligible for Israeli citizenship every year. We win. Speaking of who's eligible, you now don't have to be Jewish to be a member of a conservative synagogue. Now this is this is a very interesting story. The United Synagogue of Conservative Judaism, which is the big. Uh, organization for conservative synagogues has passed a resolution through internet voting, which is weird itself. They called an emergency online summit. So you had to like be a member of the quorum. What it looks like. You have to follow them on Twitter. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway. um, And the question was, can these synagogues like mine, for example, admit, admit non-Jews as members? The vote was 94 to eight with one abstention. Here's the thing. This came in for some mockery from people who were all like, oh my God, conservative Judaism is saying that anyone can be Jewish now. The way this plays out on the ground, I'll speak from my experience at a conservative synagogue, is that right now, since the previous rule was only Jews can be members, if you had an intermarried couple, let's say that the wife is Jewish and the husband's not, they actually paid a lower rate for membership than a couple were both because they were like, basically you paid the single person rate because you're like, oh, there's only one Jew here, but a couple- gonna, We're not going to levy the goyim. Right, exactly. We're but only going to levy the levy. So the idea being, well, the, the the Gentile spouse doesn't use the services of the shul, won't need the shul for, you know, whatever. Redemption. Burial, yeah. redemption, <laughs> doesn't come on Yom Kippur. A place in so the Holam you yeah. basically got a discount. In practice, of course, a lot of these non- Jews who are married Jews are there all the time. Like they eat the food at the Kiddush. They absolutely come on Yom Kippur. They're, they're actually – so really all this is saying is they are can be full members. And so that couple, I think what this means is that couple will pay the full couple rate even though that Jew – that non-Jew will still not be counted the minion, still won't get called to the Torah, still won't get a Jewish burial someday. But they are members because they do lots of stuff there and use lots of resources. And so the board meeting – the board meeting was probably just like, OK, now let me show you a slide. Here is the revenue stream without – Right, right. <laughs> Here is our revenue stream with. There right. has to be more more to this than money. Like I, I – I, 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 like, I, I think, I'm sure there is. I'm just saying in practice, it basically means the non-Jewish spouse now has the right to pay dues and get monthly mailings. But I also think – but if you're a non-Jewish spouse and you're going to all these synagogues, like all these all these services and you're raising your family Jewish, you're more probably more committed – you know, you're the one who has to learn all this stuff, right? Like even if you're not converting or anything. I imagine those those are the spouses who are very much committed to this. And I, I, f- I want to feel that this is the first step towards like a recognition of them. Yeah. I'm, I, I mean, mean, yes, they can't do anything that actually matters in – in the synagogue, but like, I think being, being listed as a member, like, yeah, it seems good. Right. You know, it, 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 it tears me apart. I, I gotta be completely honest. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I want to be a good human being, right? I, I want to agree I with know, you. It's completely. so hard, Leo. It's really hard. <laughs> oh, I really want to do it. Because on the one hand, you're like, what is, what is fucking wrong with you? Right. Someone wants to be a part of this. Of course, welcome them, let them. It's essential. It's so, so, so important. But at the same time, you know, it's, this is a religion. And and then what's to say? Just like, okay, well, you know, if I kind of feel Jewish, I sort of am in, you know, four or five, well, six wait. generations from now. It's like, eh, let's, eh, let's, eh, let's, eh. let's look at where the rubber hits the road. You go to Romamu, whose website actually features video testimonials from people who in say, which Jews I'm are not, in the minority. Right, right. From like Hi, Rabbi elderly Southern Baptists saying, being like, well, I'm not Jewish, but this is my spiritual home. Like David Ingber basically says, we don't care who here is Jewish. Like you want to be a black Muslim. You want to be an elderly white Baptist. Like this so do is- they pay dues? They is that can. part of it? They can. Sure. He'll take their money. Yeah. I mean, I love David. That didn't. That was not a. I just meant like. No, I get it. I, the and, community and, you know, look, he is. I, in no, Liel's very like do as I say. 
but here's the thing like i i made a like a commitment i'm not requiring to that the commitment would be to every single you know halachic kind of clause but what i am saying is it's important to me that there is a level of of religious how would i even put it affiliation continuity commitment that you say like okay you know i want to be part of this community you know, I'm I'm gonna become a Jew, and I'm gonna be really, really serious about it. Otherwise, it's like yeah, I kind of like it. I'm kind of gonna come here. I just again, it I'm has sort to of like, gonna be a part of this, but sort of not. It all goes back to what membership is, which basically it means right. You're I like, see membership you're, as I'm in. A lot of these people are in. Yeah, I mean, who's trying to go to synagogue these days? Like that, that these people actually want to go. These people, um, these these. No, I'm just saying. Like, people. I think this idea that we these like they're they're committed. They want to be a member. Like, they want to be part of this, even if they're not going to convert. Like, I just I just think this is this is all good. Conservative rabbis, yet, conservative Jews and rabbis, we want to hear from you on this. Write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Subject um, line: Why Liel is wrong. <laughs> Uh, we have some upcoming live shows. Uh, Golem, the band that does our music, uh, which which you know plays on an endless loop in your sleep, J. Crew, uh, will be at Drum in New York City on March 23rd, doing their their cool fake wedding. Go to DrumNYC.com for more info. Um, a kind of live show is that one of our two house Australians, producer Alyssa Goldstein, will is is on the latest episode of the Dating Cast. Y O Y. Uh, she is recorded on a setup date talking about the things that really matter, like whether you guys will care for each other's personal parts when you get old. Anyway, check out YOY. They're great friends of the show, and Alyssa is our producer. Um, finally, a kind of live show is that I will be in Tel Aviv on March 17th. Shabbat evening, 8 p.m., I will be violating Shabbat at Bicicleta. But it is in the spirit of Tel Aviv to be out partying on Shabbos. So we're going to have an unorthodox meetup. Uh, I'd love to hear if you're coming. Email me at moppenheimer at tabletmag.com. And, uh, yeah, we'll have a little thing going on. You guys are buying the drinks, by the way. I, I plan to drink for free. Um, it should shock everyone to hear that. <laughs> that's right. Then I'm going to sneak into a movie. Our Jewish guest this week is the Toronto-bred, L.A.-living Adam Irving, whose documentary Off the Rails tells the story of Darius McCollum, a New York City legend who has been stealing trains and buses since he was 15. He doesn't actually take them. He runs them. They're full route and does an amazing job. He, he has, provides a great service. Yeah, he's like one of the best drivers. <laughs> he has Asperger's and is single-mindedly focused on trains and basically knows more than like most of the MTA workers. They won't hire him, though, and he's instead spent much of the last 30 years in prison. Uh, this is Adam's first film. Welcome, Adam. Thanks for having me. I have to say, I could not stop thinking about this film, especially as I rode the subway in the days after seeing it. And right. I just kept thinking, there's so much going on that I have <laughs> no idea about. I ride this thing several times a day, and I just don't even think about what and goes on. And the drivers on. are so shitty. I mean, that guy <laughs> has to have been a much better driver. Yeah, he is a lot better. Not formally trained, but uh, claims to have driven over 500 trains and buses over 35 years. So he knows what he's doing. So how did you discover Darius? I mean, how did you get the idea to make this a film? I mean, what was sort of the whole process? I first discovered Darius on Wikipedia. I was just reading an article about people who are obsessed with trains. They're called foamers because they get so excited by trains, they foam at the mouth when they see one. So like F-O-A-M-E-R-S? Yeah. They're usually men. They're usually... Uh, on the uh, autism spectrum, they usually live with their parents and aren't particularly good at courting women. And they uh, seem to really, really, really love trains to the point where it consumes their lives. And um, in reading this Fomer article, I naturally came to Darius because his love of transit is so strong that it's cost him half his life uh, in prison. So the first line of his Wikipedia article read like the description of a movie. I just couldn't believe this story was true, that this guy had been arrested 32 times for the same bizarre crime, never hurt anyone, never, never damaged any property, and just sounded like uh, Catch Me If You Can, which is a movie I like. I'm sorry, this is Catch Me If You Can because I'm going really, really, really slow on the end line <laughs> on the local. Yeah, exactly. It's not. It's not like uh, Darius ever runs from the right. the police. They, you know, he just does the route. Anyway, so I began exchanging letters with him over a hundred letters over the course of six months, getting to know him, and eventually flew from L.A. where I live to New York, and I visited Darius in jail, 
and he was totally normal. We just took it from there. So does he, I mean, he's been arrested. He spent, as he says, more than half of his adult life in, in jail. And there yeah. been 32 arrests, probably more by now. Um, what's it like for him in prison? I mean, is he, does, he doesn't seem, when you see him interviewed, he seems so chill. Like, you know, you spend some time in jail, and then you spend some time getting back to what you love, which is pretending to be, uh, you know, a, a transit operator. And is he the least bit traumatized by all this time in jail? He is, but it's, deep in his subconscious and he won't discuss it. He won't express it. I know he's been assaulted. He's been abused. Um, He has to be escorted by corrections officers whenever he leaves his cell because he's often beaten up. He's a big guy, but he's not a fighter. He's a mama's boy and he doesn't like violence. He's not at all a typical inmate, but Because of his Asperger's and because he's been incarcerated so many times, I think he is used to it and even comfortable with the routine and predictability of prison on a certain level, just in the same way he thrives on the routine and predictability of the transit system because it runs on a schedule and is predictable. So the only place that Darius is not comfortable is a world that most of us live in, which is outside of jail and outside of the transit system where we have to, you know, go to work, make money, get an apartment, you know, find love, make a family. Those are all things Darius has never really been able to do. So can you describe to us how he steals these trains? He's got a few ways of doing it. The easiest one would be if a MTA worker that he knows simply gives him their vehicle for the day so that they can go home and get paid, and he does their job for free. Because, I mean, since he this was is the 15, greatest right? city in the world. One I'm of just going to say that. One of the things is, like, when he was a 12-year-old boy, he was hanging around down there, and he was the cute kid that they'd let drive the trains with them. We need to find someone to host our podcast, like, impersonate right. us. We'll go home and nap. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much how, you know, the main way he would do it. And the workers trusted him because every time he got arrested, driving a bus or a train that a current worker had lent him, he would never give up the name of who it was. So he could do it that way, take over a shift midway, and then give the, the, the reins back to the original driver at the end of the shift so that the original driver could return the vehicle and no one would know Darius had covered, you know, seven hours of that eight-hour shift. And then the other way, which he seems to do more of these days, is he just goes on his own to a train depot or a, or a bus depot and signs out a vehicle with a fake ID wearing a real MTA uniform and speaking the lingo. He'd say, hey, I'm, I'm here to sign out the R142 northbound A train, blah, blah, blah. And they don't question it because how would he know the name of the supervisor and the, the tracks he's supposed to switch on and who the signal person is for that day? They have made no outreach to him, have they? What is their relationship with him? Right, there should be a job, a role for this guy. It's like guy. if you're a yeah. hacker and then you get hired by the company right. to like fix the... Yeah. Why isn't he an MTA employee? What's wrong with these people? Well, Darius has embarrassed the MTA by showing how easy it is to take their vehicles and impersonate their employees. He's actually got the the nuclear missile launch codes right now. Yeah. The last thing they want to do is give him the keys to the system so he can do anything he wants. They, They don't want to reward him for his bad behavior, even though giving him a job driving trains would solve both his problem and their problem of having vehicles go missing because they'd just be driving them legally. The problem is... I don't know if they'd be able to get insurance for someone who has 20 transit-related felonies. I don't know if it would be a very good PR. I think I think it would be great PR in some circles. And all the felonies are driving the train. <laughs> and, and doing it well, right? Yeah. Like, I love in one of the earlier his scenes, record's great. his mother, when he first got arrested, when he was young, said, you know, he like he did a bad thing, but, you know, the riders said it was the best ride, like, in, in weeks. <laughs> Yeah, she said, I was, you know, so angry at him that he, you know, broke the law and got arrested. <laughs> but I was so proud of him that he made every stop on schedule. Enough about Darius. Let's talk about you, Adam. Uh, <laughs> seven or eight years ago, you were a camera operator on Brides of Beverly Hills. Uh, Correct. At least according to IMDb. Yeah. Uh, so there you are. You know, I'm guessing, I mean, I who among us didn't love Brides of Beverly Hills? But I'm guessing that as you were camera operator number three, you were harboring dreams of being, a, you know, a documentary filmmaker. What's that like when you're, you know, you're in California, you're, you're in this industry where you're 
doing some anonymous job that maybe you take some pride in and pays the rent, but mm-hmm. it's like not where you want to end up. Do you ever think, well, screw it, like time to time to go to law school or, you know, rise up in the ranks at Walmart or whatever? Like what's the what's the mindset seven or eight years ago? How much despair is there? How much optimism? So my first few years working as a reality TV cameraman, among other things, it wasn't as though I wasn't able to just, you know, get up and make a documentary. I just didn't have a really great idea that was worth giving up a lot of income for and time. And I also felt I wasn't quite ready with my skills because I never went to film school. I actually dropped out of my PhD program in film theory, which actually taught me nothing about how to make a film, just how to analyze one and critique one. Leo so, is nodding so respect, affir- brother, so affirmatively. <laughs> so I kind of needed that reality TV boot camp to teach me the ropes of how to use all this uh, sometimes complicated equipment, how to, you know, how to have the strength to shoot a 14-hour day, um, a thankless one. And after a few years of that, I just decided on my own, okay, I think I'm ready to do this. And I read about Darius, and I just knew that was it. I knew in that moment when I read Darius's Wikipedia article that the next four years of my life would be dedicated to telling his story. And I can't tell you how satisfying it is to set a goal that ambitious and actually achieve it and now look back at those reality TV days and um, not to be smug, but, you know, most of the guys that I work with in that world are still in it and that's how they make their living. And I know that they like it to some degree, but probably are a little envious that I was able to you know, make my own baby. And we will be, be smug on your behalf. Right. So yeah, let, let's, we will let's, be smug let's, for you. Let's, uh, let, let, let me ask you, t- tell these losers, uh, <laughs> what's life like now? Cause this movie has, has been, you know, it's, it's amazing and it's been so unbelievably received. You know, are you, are you taking lunches now with producers? <laughs> are you, are you hanging out with Scarlett Johansson? What's going on? Have you, have you dumped significant others for more attractive for people? models? Right? How's, how's life? <laughs> I mean, to be, <laughs> Perfectly frank, a lot of that is true. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I actually, yeah, I have a lunch tomorrow, which may lead to my next film. Um, people are calling me big producers who have produced Oscar winning films. Um, I, yeah, I, I find girls are more attracted to me now when they Google me. They say, oh, this guy's this guy legit. He's been on national television. It's more that it's a different that... quality of girl than you got when you were the cameraman number three on Brides of Beverly Hills. So at the same time as all this is happening to you, actually, there's a film being made about Darius now as well, starring um, Julia Roberts as his lawyer, right? Yeah, it's sort of a reprisal of an Oscar-winning role she had about 15 years She's ago. Getting, he's Aaron getting Brockovich. Aaron Brockovich, too. Yeah, uh, and and you know, I think Julia is a good fit to play Darius's lawyer. The thing is, they haven't cast, as far as I know, they haven't cast the role for Darius yet. That's very important. I don't know who they're talking to exactly, but they have a director on board now, and the film is fully financed. It's just a question of getting all the pieces together. And it's called tentatively called Train Man, and it's going to be way bigger than my movie. So is it, is it connected yeah. to your movie? I mean, is it based on, like, how does this, and is it just good because now your name, your movie will be it, mentioned in the same breath? Like, how, what does this mean for and, you? And a follow-up question, are you fucking annoyed by this shit? Because here you are making no, a freaking masterpiece and then everyone will remember, oh yeah, it was that great Julia Roberts movie. Like, that's disgusting. Yeah, he's annoyed all the way to the bank. I'm going to wait until the movie comes out to make that assessment because it might actually be a pretty good movie. Um, I have seen the script and it's pretty decent. I'm sure it's um, changed a bit since I last read it, but I think there's some potential there. It's Let me tell you, it's, it's, it's not going to be as good as your movie. I'm telling you right no, now. I, I, I think that's very unlikely that it'll have a hundred percent Rotten Tomato score. Uh, <laughs> that, <laughs> that, that rarely happens. Do you mention um, that in dating profiles? No, I just kind of hope that that will be discovered. <laughs> <laughs> So one final question for you. Are you still in touch with Darius? And what did he think of the film? Yeah, I, I talk to him pretty, pretty regularly. Unfortunately, he hasn't seen Off the Rails. I sent it to the warden, and she's reviewing it. But uh, it's been months, and it just doesn't look like they're going to let him see it. It's very unfortunate. I think he's seen the trailer, and several corrections officers at the jail that he's at came to see my movie in theaters in New York and introduced themselves to me. And I just thought that it was hilarious that 
the very people that are locking him up are fans of his and going to see his movie. Amazing. And is he expected out of jail anytime soon? He's not. He's um, has to get sentenced first, and he's been waiting over a year and a half just to get sentenced. Uh, if he does go to trial and is found guilty, he'll get 15 to life. So he may not ever get out because he's 51 now and not in the greatest health. Uh, whereas if he pleads guilty and makes a deal with the DA, they could possibly get the sentence down to, let's say, five years. And because he's ar- he, by then he would have already served two years in jail, he may get out after three years or ideally even a little bit less. Well, thanks so much, Adam. Um, and our listeners can watch Off the Rails on iTunes in the, in the comfort of their own home. And they or can watch in, Adam on Tinder. Yes, they can find him on Tinder, um, Adam Irving. And it's in select theaters around the country. And you can check out offtherailsmovie.com for more info. Thanks so much, Adam. Thanks, Adam. My pleasure. Oh, cinnamon, where you gonna run to? Cinnamon, where you gonna run to? Where you gonna run to? Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. The time has come to welcome some new subscribers to our newsletter. This week, it is the elite, elite personal injury law firm of Jeremy Crohn's Sam Hacker. That's female Sam Hacker, in case you want to picture her. Carl Shapiro, Ali Copeland, Tilda Rosender, Jordan McGill, Sophie Fierst, Aaron Hendershaft, Don Katz, Catherine O'Neill, and Irene Pappas-Rudnick. Catherine O'Neill and Irene Pappas-Rudnick came to us as in the same email. So I thought that maybe we would muse on who they are. Liel, do you, do you know who Irene and Catherine are? I know Catherine O'Neill. Yeah. She's from the uh, Lakewood O'Neills, right? Her father is Shlomo O'Neill, <laughs> the kosher butcher. Uh-huh. Uh, she has 11 brothers and sisters. Tuvia O'Neill, <laughs> Chava O'Neill, Yafa O'Neill, Getty O'Neill, Getty O'Neill, O'Neill <laughs> uh, Esther O'Neill. Um, I actually, what's interesting is that Catherine O'Neill and Irene Pappas Rudnick, Irene is, of course, the daughter of two women, one of the early lesbian couplings out of North Dakota. Um, that was uh, uh, Elena Pappas and uh, uh, Valerie Rudnick. And when they gave their daughter, their sperm donor daughter, um, a hyphenated women's last name in North Dakota in uh, 1994. That was a big deal. Now she, of course, is a lesbian herself and is marrying Catherine O'Neill. And their daughters, God willing, are going to be the O'Neill Pappas Rudnicks. And this is going to be a major baby naming back in North Dakota. <laughs> Irene Pappas Rudnick, uh, you know, part Greek, part Jewish. She's her own Hanukkah miracle. <laughs> <laughs> she fights herself for eight days and then eats a latke and is happy. Okay, I have the real answer. Irene, I have we, the, we love you. I, I have the real much. answer. Give the we real miss answer. You. Irene yeah. and Kat are my college besties, and they signed up for the newsletter. I wanted to be to be mentioned. I actually did find out, though, Irene's Irene Pappas, and she married um, Ben Rudnick. But I found out that Irene's father, her both parents are Greek, and her father's grandfather was a Sephardic Jew. No doubt. And I'm just like, oh my God, of course. This is the highest compliment. Irene reads, having met Irene, she reads kind of Jewish. Oh my God, yeah, totally. I mean, as Greeks often do. So not 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 shocking. Um, you haven't met Kat, but she's half I was cons- Irish, half Paraguayan. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to say more than this, but the move for people named Catherine to be called Cat is not a strong move. I realize she didn't do it to herself. No, she did. She's she. Her parents call her family calls her Kathy. Catherine. Okay, I can. But there's no some Kathy's. context. She's... I just I just miss the old days of Kathy's. Like no, the diminutive nicknames: Jimmy, Kathy Bobby, is, Sue, is, Kathy. Is, is, it's very weak, but Catherine. Yeah, Catherine's Fox, stronger. She's, I think Catherine she's like Catherine Joe. in her consultant. It's just that when you're called Cat, I think meow. Mm-hmm. 
Our Gentile of the Week is Macy Halford, whose new book is My Utmost, a devotional memoir about the best-selling evangelical daily devotional, My Utmost for His Highest. Macy is an evangelical Christian from Dallas who moved to New York to attend Barnard and then worked at The New Yorker for eight years, where she edited and wrote uh, the online book review. She lives in Strasbourg, France now with her fian- with her husband. Sorry. Fiance just sounded so French. Right. Why did you have fiance in your notes? It's Stephanie? not in my notes. I just saw France and then I said fiance. Oh, interesting. Uh, so welcome, Macy. Thanks Thank for coming. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're, do you call yourself an evangelical Christian? Because I, I have a lot of evangelical still. friends who are running in the other direction from that. Absolutely. Term. Like the post-evangelical evangelicals. Yeah. Yeah. I think we all, I mean, it's such a, it's such a broad term. Um, we all sort of have trouble uh, fitting ourselves in. To that, to that camp, you know, um, even evangelical Christians, I think, like the ones you would think of as evangelical Christians, like the card-carrying members, mm-hmm. uh, the voting block, maybe, mm-hmm. um, they don't like to describe themselves necessarily as evangelical Christians. They'll just say Christians. Right. right. But I like to describe myself that way because that's the tradition I was raised in. And even if I've sort of moved in different directions culturally, um, I still feel like it's a very um, important part of who I am. Right. Sorry, we'll get to your book in a sec. Can I? Mm-hmm. I just want to geek out for one second. What kind sure. of church? What kind of church did you grow up in? I grew up in a Southern Baptist church okay. in Dallas. And yeah. then when you were in New York City, you went to Tim Keller's church. No, I didn't. Because every every evangelical moves to New York City goes to Redeemer <laughs> Presbyterian. I know. No? no, at that point, I started looking around. I went to lots of different churches in my time in New York. I started at Riverside. Um, she ended up in up Roma with us <laughs> with Rabbi David, which was totally yeah. different. He goes to a totally... synagogue that's all Christians. So. <laughs> oh God. That's amazing. So you started at Riverside. Where'd you end yeah, up? Um, well, at the end of my time here, I was I was going to Trinity Episcopalian uh-huh. down by Ground Zero, where I lived. Um, sometimes I would go to um, an Episcopalian church on the Upper East Side. Sometimes I went to All Souls, the Unitarian Church. Wow, Just you traveled around. far. Did you tell your mom you were at a Unitarian yeah, church? Yeah, no way. <laughs> uh, good fortune that we have you here now because it's actually Purim starting um, starting this Saturday and on Thursday when this episode airs is the Fast of Esther. And I bring that mm-hmm. up and it's relevant for us here because in the book you're described by your mother, by your um, sort of evangelical acquaintances you meet while in New York as an Esther who is, mm-hmm. you know, the the you're hidden among the non-believers at the New Yorker and you mm-hmm. sort of have this secret power that, you know, and you're going to like save all, like basically there's, yeah, there's a lot, it's a very loaded uh, signifier. And I feel like, mm. what did that feel like for you, for you to hear? Well, right. When my mother would say that, I would feel like, oh, you think I have so much more influence and power than I have, or that I'm, I'm going around evangelizing. You know, You're like, I'm um, just copy editing. Right. And I did feel like I had some, I was supposed to be evangelizing somehow when I first got to New York um, at Barnard and sort of f- figuring out how that wasn't possible, really. <laughs> um, like, in this Mom, very, I'm not in this seducing David Remnick. It's not happening. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not happening. <laughs> yeah, I think when, I think all of us exist in this sort of, um, secularized sphere, right, where religion is kept more private. Um, but there were many, you know, I know now, especially after I started writing my book, I I know that there were many religious, spiritual people at The New Yorker or, they you know, my friends closeted. from college. Yeah, you just don't, it's just not foregrounded in your daily interactions, right? So that was really, that was a fascinating part of writing this book, sort of having people come They're and like, say, you too? Oh, I'm, <laughs> I'm seriously Catholic or I'm, you know. One of the things that was so fascinating to me is this insistence on this personal relations, right? It's, this is not we, – we worship in private. We read the devotional. That's part mm-hmm. of its appeal. Yeah. Um, and then you get to New York. Mm-hmm. You meet a lot of people like us, right, mm-hmm. for whom – by which I'm going to say Jews – for mm-hmm. whom uh, a, lot of, a lot of this drama is lived out very publicly and, and with, with rituals, with obvious kind mm. of communal, like, markings. Is this really strange mm-hmm. for you that people are, like, well, so – Well, no, because she came from the south where – you lived in Christian society, right? Where like prayers at football games and stuff. Well, I think this is a really interesting. I mean, yes, yeah, we definitely prayed right, before but not, all the but not with our kind. all of the football <laughs> games and cheerleading practices. Um, so important to pray before a cheerleading practice. Like if Jesus right. isn't with you on the cheerleading field, no, but you could get hurt. You could get that's, hurt. That's yeah. Right. yeah, yeah, we did get hurt. Cheerleading is a sport. Yeah, yeah. well, Jesus couldn't be everywhere at once. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, no, but. 
original question was... <laughs> Jews. Did you find Jews weird? Right, right. No, I, 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 did, did, I did think... I, the, I started to think, oh, you know, it's not possible to be culturally evangelical the way it's possible to be culturally Jewish. And I thought that was really interesting. You know, um, to be evangelical is to be like a really is to believe it's to believe things basically i think there's a culture that comes out of that um like that you see in the football game prayers and things like that but it is it is totally it is very different right and if you it's stop believing ritualized you lose your evangelical way. card so this book but your so your book just right. to be clear is about your love affair with my utmost for his highest yes which is a book that i have read Mm-hmm. Um, but very few other non-evangelicals have read this book, yeah. but like millions of evangelicals have read this book. Right. It's not a good book. You like it. I like it. It's not a good book. Yeah. Do you want to tell us about why, why you like, what this book is and why you like it? Yeah. Um, it's like a daily little... It's like a daily... Yes. Our listeners oh, have yeah, no idea what a devotional is. Okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> a daily... <laughs> so a daily devotional is a book with a reading for each day of the year, like a dated entry. Um, it starts with a Bible verse, and then it has about 200 to 300 words of advice and interpretation um, of the Bible verse, basically. Um, and evangelicals read them, uh, many of us, every day during our daily quiet time. So a time set aside for reflection and prayer um, and devotion, communion with God. Um, so this yeah. book is kind of much derided outside. It's, it's hokey. I would yeah, say. I don't like think that. Elitist. I don't yeah, think it's so not elitist. I think there are better devotionals. I don't think this is a good one. I, I like Macy's book much more than I like the book right. that her book is about. Well, uh, okay, yeah. I I really loved it because um, to me, I find it very inspirational. Right, like what it's supposed to be. You yeah. know, um, um, the first entry I rem- I remember loving was this was July seventh. All noble things are difficult, and it's basically about. True. You know, having to work hard um, to achieve certain things. Um, let me see if I can say why this was important. In my church growing up, I heard I heard um, advice like just let go and let God or just come. And Chambers had, Oswald Chambers, the author, had a vision of sort of Christian experience that was much more active, proactive, like an active relationship between the believer and God. Yeah, for me, that was really profound. My faith is something I'm enacting with God, you know, in the world. I see him as a as a realist, somebody who wants you to realize and actualize your faith out in the world. I really liked what I found about Oswald Chambers in researching this book. Um, my utmost for his highest... Crazy life. You yeah, want to give us a brief... Crazy life. Crazy life. Yeah, I sort of thought I might find just sort of a... a you know, kind of a run-of-the-mill evangelical preacher. And I found um, an artist and a philosopher and a poet and somebody who um, read voraciously in many different many different genres and incorporated a lot of it into his preaching and his, and was very hard to categorize. You and know, he was sort of... Bizarre locations. Yeah. And he he was sort of devoted to not fitting in very well to any particular camp. And so here's an unfair question. If... if he were here today to witness mm-hmm. the evangelical movement and its its mm-hmm. lockstep with uh, the rise of the Trump movement. What what do you think would be his reflections? Right. Well, he 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 was very wary of um, Christ, not just Christians, but any any religious believers um, beginning to identify themselves too strongly with an ideology. You know, I don't think I think he thought. Um, the world is this big, messy, wild place, and Christianity should sort of resemble that because that's what the world is, right? Um, so I don't, you know, I don't know exactly how he would feel about <laughs> about uh, what we're seeing right now in the country, but I think he would just say that doesn't reflect um, the full body of believers. So you're our Gentile of the week. Yes. Do you have a question for this internationally recognized panel of Jewish experts about <laughs> yes. Judaism? So when I was so when I moved to New York, I started acquiring Jewish friends just by the dozen. You know, <laughs> we come cheap <laughs> in New York. Like bagels and Jewish <laughs> friends, right. both There are a, yeah. a lot of two for one sales. Yeah. yeah, you get a guy and you get Jordan and his roommate right. Ari. Yeah. Right. Um, but very few. I mean, I would say 
less than 10% were actually really observant. So for Christians, we feel really guilty if we go on and, 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 and stop going to church and, um, and, are, and are not observant, right? Um, so I guess my question is about guilt, do it's a, what you have to so there's two. We are familiar kind of with two the, the overall sentence. We've heard of it. Yeah. Yeah. What about so it? So if you so so this culturally Jewish question. Do we feel guilty question, that we don't go to synagogue? Yeah, and why? And do you think that why why do so few? Okay, so the yeah, the, I'll just say the first thing you have to understand about Jordan and Ari and uh, and Mark and Morris and Shlomo mm-hmm. and all your Jewish friends. Morris, they're not named Morris anymore. <laughs> uh, is that their parents didn't go to synagogue either. It's not like they drifted. Like, your parents go to church, right? Um, yes. So if you stopped going, you'd feel guilty. You'd have to lie when you go home. Yes. But their parents didn't go, and their parents didn't go. Maybe their parents went. So a lot of these people grew up in communities that were culturally and maybe mm-hmm. religious. But see, the actual going isn't as important in every community. But yeah, but some people, sure, if they fall away, if they grew up going and then they stop, yeah, they feel guilty. But it's not as much about constantly reaffirming um, I mean, you're supposed to go, but there's a lot more. Like, if you stop believing, you kind of have to trade in your card. And we're born into this. We can't we can't get out even if we want to. Mm-hmm. So the going is, I'd say, less foregrounded. The tragedy is that we've, right. re- we've replaced actual worship with kind of cheap and easy markers. Like, I'm Jewish. I watch Seinfeld and uh, twice really a year. Seinfeld and I'm bagels. going to fucking <laughs> sit through some meal and read some text that I don't fully understand. And somehow that's okay. Liel's a fundamentalist. Um, which is why. Yeah. But he also right. eats pork. <laughs> right. It's full of contradictions. It all works in Liel I land. Think, okay. I think that I'm not, I'm always sort of convinced that, I'm not entirely convinced, but this idea of cultural Judaism, we've talked about this before. It doesn't, there's no real like Christian analog for it because mm, there's just yeah. much more flexibility there. And Liel obviously hates it and thinks that like cultural Jews are the. I don't hate it. Like I, think, the, I think it's a religion. I think it's first and foremost a religion. So I think it's what Mark was saying a little bit. Like, we know we can't stop being Jewish. Like, it, I want I don't want to say it all comes back to the Holocaust, but like, we've said this before. Like, I I know that if someone's counting Jews, like I'm on that list, no matter what I do. Like, no matter how many times I go to temple. So I feel like the that that has sort of translated into. So you this. really don't have to go to temple. You're already on the list. Yeah, well, I'm on the list. But that's like theologically very profound. That's in Torah, is where Jews, if we're descended from Abraham, like, like there's this 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 weird thing, and then that's actually. Mm-hmm in a strange way has evolved into the cultural Jew, right? It's evolved into like Jewish humor and things like that, that, that it comes from a weird dark place, I think, but it has actually expressed itself. And I think a very nice way. And I love bagels and walks. And I don't goes, often go to, goes to funny about Nick. <laughs> I also think a lot of Christians, and I mean this with a lot of love. Some of my best friends are lying to themselves. And the evangelical world is filled with people who don't actually believe, but showing up is an important mm-hmm. reminder to yourself that you believe. Right. Uh, I mean, that's the great unspoken in the, in the Christian world. What? <laughs> what is that? You think it? You think? I, well, okay. The I, I think you can't admit it <clears throat> if you're if you're like I haven't believed in God for right. the past six months. That's not something that's talked about. But of course, even really devout right. people go through seasons of unbelief. But there's a massive sort of like denial about that. Right. Because it is about belief. It's about, it's belief. about belief. So like sure. you have no yeah. claim to be a Christian if you stop believing. Therefore, there's a massive level of denial about the levels of unbelief. You can't just, you don't drift away for six months and say, well, I've been reading my utmost, so I'm still right. kind of in touch with the culture. So I think there's a lot of neurotic dishonesty because so much turns on belief. You don't get to sort of take holidays from it. Right. Well, we don't discuss that in churches. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so I have a question for you. A lot of the books takes, a lot of the book takes place before Obama is elected, like right in the yeah. right, uh, like in the leading, lead up to election day mm. and how it, you're back in Dallas, you're with your family, it's like really, really intense. What is it like there now to go back? Yeah, I was just home. I was home um, right after the election for a month. Um, it's not great. You know, it's um, it's more fraught than the period depicted in the book. Um, I feel like in some ways, I feel like this has been a challenge of these of the past 20 years of my life, trying to navigate this divide and trying to like stay in communication with my family as our politics have drifted apart. Because for my family, these are religious questions, um, right? Who you're going to vote for. And this past election was no different. Um, the pastor of the church was telling people they must vote for righteousness, meaning the Republican ticket. Um, so it's been... The conversation has been increasingly more difficult to have. 
Um, but it was interesting to be in a place where everyone was happy over the holidays. <laughs> I felt like I was in a, a really a different world. Because they're all yeah. pleased with the direction the country's going in now. They're pleased. Yeah, they were pleased. Very pleased. So, yeah. Can I ask? I have to ask about your mother. Because so you sure. and your mother are super close, even though yeah. you sort of you went away yeah. from home. You sort of mm-hmm. had a very different life than than she does. Um, mm-hmm. You call her twice a day, mm-hmm. which made me think that maybe you were Jewish. But <laughs> from um, France, she calls twice a day. <laughs> it's fallen a bit. Is from France. So for what does sure. she think of the book? Um, she likes it. My mother. You know, this is you know individuals in within these communities can be anything you know um she i had run by her the parts that were about her i had told her she knows who i am like we have conversations about this all the time so um she's been very supportive which is wonderful yeah (laughs) because i think it's tough i i do think it's tough you know i think it's tough when your kid doesn't doesn't share your um sort of cultural convictions but it's funny because at the end of the day, you wrote a book about right. a devotional text. Like you really I went know. all out, right? Like, how many books, how many books has she written about Jesus? You know? like, who else's kids are yeah. doing this? Um, all right. Well, so thank you so much, Macy. Um, you can follow Macy on Twitter at Macy Halford and you can find her book, My Utmost, a devotional memoir at all book retailers. Great. Thank all you all. Re- thank all you book retailers. Thank you. <laughs> Is there anyone who ever Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. A little mail this week. Um, got one letter. I'm finding great comfort in re-listening to Mark's recounting of the cupcake story after putting down his dog, JJ. Our dogs are members of the mishpucha, and parting with our longtime best friends is very challenging. Today, my dog, too, was put down. A 16-year-old Japanese chin named Carmel, whom I won from my Jewish sleepaway camp when I was 11. Yes, one. Sincerely, Stephen Bronstein. I just want to say, there are Jewish sleepaway camps that give away puppies? That seems I mean, like a terrible idea. I am signing up right now. <laughs> anyway, they should do that at Temple. Uh, Stephen Bronstein, he says, I would love to think JJ now has a Jewish friend in doggy heaven. I am sure that JJ and Chin are like... Caramel. Chin is the kind oh, of dog. Chin's the kind completely of dog. Racist. Caramel and JJ are, are lighting Shabbat candles together in yes. heaven. That is amazing. Um we got a whole bunch of mail uh, next week and the week after that we're saving, but we're just going to leave it with Steven and his dog, his dog, uh, Carmel, for this week because we can't top that. As ever, write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Remember to go to iTunes and subscribe and rate us. I mean, rate us strongly. Don't rate us badly. Uh, any Mazel Tovs this week? Uh, Stephanie? Um, my mom's birthday was yesterday, and she's coming into town, and we are going to spend we are gonna spend Elise. the week together. Elise, just me and Elise. And then, then, yeah, it's going to be fun. Uh I have an amazing <laughs> Mazel Tov to, and listen, everyone here, to our best, do you hear? Our best listener. Dan Boydnot from Louisiana. 
uh, who today sent us the most amazing gift. Mark, do you want to say what the gift was? The gift was little shot glasses that said... <laughs> in Hebrew. In, in Hebrew, Hebrew lettering that said on the outside, Bore pre Haagave. Amen. For us to drink. Making our our tequila shots that much more kosher. And so, first of all, the rest of you are very bad listeners because you're on notice, Jake. Absolutely no form of gift and bribe whatsoever. And Dan, the man, Mazeltov, thank you. And we've put a little something something in the mail for you. It's a token of our love. So, Liel has gotten a tequila present. I've gotten an enamel pin. Mark, have you gotten nope. anything? They never send me anything. You nope. need to like refine your brand. It's sort so of it's a, easier well, for people to figure it's out like what to I'm get you. It's like I'm the dad. They never, the parents never That's get right. gifts. You know, they're That's just right. they're taken for granted. Uh, Can I get some allowance? <laughs> <laughs> the things I allow already. Um, Macy Howard still sitting in with us. Do you have a Do you have a Mazel Tove? I do. Okay, I do. Um, I will Mazel Tov my friend Stefan Block, who has just finished his third novel. Yay, Stefan Block. Come on Orthodox and we'll ask you ridiculous questions as well. Absolutely. I have um I have a double a double mazel tov. Um the first one is to the people at New Voices, which is an online Jewish campus publication. They're drawing their writers from all sorts of different campuses and universities. Uh, they have a big conference coming up uh, that you can find out more about at newvoices.org. They're basically trying to get a nationwide movement of of Jewish student journalists going. There's a Jewish Kanuga, is what you're saying. <laughs> the Jewish Kanuga. The Januga. They, um, they are the Jewish summer camp that gives you a puppy, is what they are. They're like journalist high school boot camp without puppies. Anyway, go to newvoices.org. Just, you know what, listeners? Make their day by just going going and reading tons of their articles and sending them emails. And speaking of making people's day, what else should listeners do? And listeners should also go to hear the new podcast from America Magazine, which is called Jesuitical. Um, it is basically the Catholic unorthodox. America Magazine is the Jesuits magazine. Which I subscribe uh, yep. to. I'm um, the only Leibowitz who subscribes to America Magazine. I'm pretty certain So you that. think. Anyway, it's a very good magazine. It's one of the two or three very good American Catholic magazines. And they have a podcast. We, um, I don't think I'm giving anything away by saying they asked us some questions about like how do we do it? How do we make the magazine? Magic, and how could they make a Catholic version of their magic? And we have forgiven them for some three thousand years of <laughs> you know some unfortunate incidents. We're all we love them now. We're all family on the island of Manhattan, and they it debuted on Ash Wednesday. Um, and go to their website, go go to America Magazine's website, and listen to Jesuitical, and just freaking inundate them with congratulations and like I want them to have ten thousand downloads. Next Give them week. ecumenical love. Give them ecumenical. Say the Jews sent you love. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Our show is edited by Noah Levinson and produced by Alyssa Goldstein and Shira Tolushkin. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Adam Irving and kosher slaughtering by our listener Dominique Guidry, who has the most Cajun name in the world but sends us mail. Find Tablet Magazine on Facebook or on Twitter. We're at Tablet Mag. Our music is by Golem, and we record in Argo Studios, which is not covered by the latest version of Trump's travel ban. We are proud to be part of the Panoply Network. Shalom, friends. Shalom, friends.